want to ask you, if you don't mind, to turn to Genesis chapter 2. It's a pretty familiar text for us. We tend to come here for lots of different things. As we wrap up this series in the family, I want to come back to this text again because I think it provides us an important lens through which we see the world. I think in a lot of ways, I'm going to use a movie reference here in a second and hopefully you'll follow me. And if you don't, then um, you can go home and watch the movie, and it'll help you, okay? So there's this movie called National Treasure. How many of you have seen National Treasure, the original one, okay? If you haven't, you need to go home because this is a good illustration for sermons, and it will help you, okay? So National Treasure, you've got this historian guy who believes in conspiracy theories and so forth, and he believes there's a lot more to American history than meets the eye. So he finds out through a series of events, I won't give away the whole plot, that on the back of the Declaration of Independence is a treasure map. But to be able to read that treasure map, you have to get these special pair of spectacles that I think, I believe, Benjamin Franklin made, and they're hidden in Independence Hall in a brick up on the roof. And so he goes to Independence Hall, steals the brick, gets the spectacles, steals the Declaration of Independence, is able to read the map because there's like these special lenses that allow him to see the secret map. And then he finds this amazing treasure in Trinity Church down near Wall Street, and um, it's this amazing find and so forth, and I just gave away the plot for those of you who haven't yet seen the movie, but the point of the illustration is that there is treasure to be found, but there's only real one way to find it, and it's done through the means of or by agency of these magical spectacles. Now, that may sound kind of corny to you, but I'm going to make a point, I promise, and that is that In the Bible, as we look into Genesis chapters 2 through 3, I think in many ways, these two chapters in particular, of course, all the Scriptures are like this. They become a light to our path. They become a lens through which we look at the world. But in a lot of ways, Genesis chapters 2 through 3 hold a special place in the Bible, which makes sense because they're here at the beginning. But I think in so many different ways, Genesis chapters 2 through 3 provide those lenses through which we can look at the world and interpret why things are the way they are. So generally speaking, why do I have this sense that there's something bigger and more grand than what I can see with my eyes? Why is it that I long for something transcendent? Why am I the way that I am? Why do I struggle so much? doing the things I don't want to do and not always doing the things that I want to do. And understanding my brokenness and my inability, where is the hope for me? And how will it all turn out? Well, these questions and so many more, I think, are are unfolded or at least are begun to be unfolded here in these couple of chapters and give us lenses through which we can interpret our world, understanding God understanding us, understanding the future. But I think in particular, these chapters help us to understand marriage. And as you see on the screen there in front of you, marriage is full of struggle, but through marriage we are promised salvation. Now, I think if most of us are being honest, we we would say both. Marriage has not always been easy. Now, Probably for a lot of you, you have, we have actually sat down together and talked about our marriages. And so I know this about most of you. I know with most of you that marriage has not always been easy. In fact, it may not have been easy this morning. 
That may explain why some people aren't here because they're struggling through their marriage. That's the way it works. Some of you are looking forward to the prospect of marriage, and this might scare you a little bit because all you know right now is bliss, and yet you talk to people who are married and they say it's hard, and you think to yourself, well, maybe I shouldn't get married, or maybe on the other hand you think to yourself, I will never struggle in my marriage. Well, I will disabuse you of that notion, you will. But on the other hand, it's worth it because there is hope, there is salvation to be found, not because of our marriage, but pictured through our marriages. So I want us to honestly look into this text today and see if it's indeed true that these two chapters provide for us lenses through which we can interpret why marriage is a struggle, and yet why in our marriages, or at least through our marriages, we have the hope of a salvation. Now, I recognize that not everybody today here is married. I recognize that not everybody wants to be married. But at the same time, as I always say whenever we have a sermon on marriage, you're around people all the time who are married, and of course the prospect may be out there for you someday as well. So we typically live in a society, of course, that is full of married people, so this will help you understand them even if you're not. But for most of us, again, we are. And we have this notion to deal with. That is, why are our marriages hard and what do we do about it? The first thing I want us to talk about today is, why is marriage so hard? Why is it such a struggle? We're going to look at three things today, and I hope that it will help us unpack why we struggle so much. So let's read together before we put the ideas in front of the screen there, some verses that I think will begin to help us. Beginning back in chapter 2, we find a, a recapitulation a restatement of what Moses has already said in Genesis chapter 1. So God is the creator. God made, made everything out of nothing. He spoke everything into existence. Genesis chapter 1 gives us some measure of detail, although it's, it's purely just categorical. But in chapter 2, he, he comes at it from a different angle. He, he restates the fact that God has created. But in chapter 2 specifically, he's not focusing so much on, on the creative order around us, but more on the people that will inhabit the created order. In fact, that's mostly why he gives the accounts anyway. He wants us to see that, that there is an environment into which he planted us, and the environment into which he planted us, in fact, we ourselves, all of us came from God, what we see and who we are. We all came from God. Everything that is came from him. And in chapter 2, he wants to, for the most part, focus on the chief object of God's created order, that is people, humans, because we alone are created in the image of God. We are the crowning achievement of God's creation. In verse 18, he begins to get more specific as he talks about our first parents. Look with me in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. <clears throat> now, in one way or another, maybe in your premarital counseling, you covered this text. Maybe in your wedding itself, you had this text read. For those of you who I've been involved in your marriage ceremony, we almost for sure have gone through this extensively. But I think the first thing that Moses says to us, although I don't know that this is his main point, but we certainly can find these principles. The first one is, marriage elicits unfulfilled longings. Marriage elicits unfulfilled longings. Now, for the most part, in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2, it's all really positive. God makes Adam... But there's something about Adam that's not complete. Not because God can't satisfy him, but there's something built into the DNA, to the very psyche of humanity, that is completed through relationship. And in particular, compatible relationship. Which is why God gave Adam somebody that was like him, but not exactly like him. This is why God parades the animals in front of Adam. Not because God didn't have time to think up names for them, but because He wanted Adam to see that in all of creation there was great diversity. And yet with the giraffes and the orangutans and the sloths and everything else, they weren't quite like Him. And He could enjoy them, but they weren't somebody to bring Him companionship. So God in some ways creates within Adam though not sinfully, an ache for something that is not there yet. Then God puts him to sleep and makes someone compatible to him. It will be his wife. And as we've talked about before, the first human poem is penned in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Adam breaks out in sort of exultant praise because God made her perfectly. Now, I, I imagine Eve was really pretty, you know, like in all children's books, Eve is good looking, right? I mean, she's, she's, you know, shaped the right way and she has the right hair and the right face and all that kind of stuff. I mean, she's sort of this idealized woman. Now, she's always like a white chick. I, I assume Adam was kind of brown, you know, but, but for most of us who have like the Jesus Storybook Bibles who pay money for this stuff, you know, like they know that we want to see people just like us. So, Eve's like a good-looking white chick. I don't have any idea what she looked like. She, she probably, again, was kind of brown and sort of medium-colored and so forth. But, but she's our first mother, and she's this perfect woman, and, and Adam was, was totally pleased with her. And Moses responds in verses 24 and 25, and he says that these two now perfect people will become one flesh. So God made them. God made them perfectly, and then he put them together. And then Moses mentions in verse 25 that they were naked and were not ashamed. And the primary point here that Moses is trying to make is not their lack of clothing, but just to show that in their perfect state, there there was nothing wrong. They perfectly enjoyed each other. But there's a hint there in verse 25, especially with what we know about chapter 3, that, that it won't stay that way. So Moses is almost saying in verse 25, for a while... There was no shame. For a while, there was no struggle. For a while, marriage wasn't hard. But we ask ourselves the question, why is marriage so hard? 
I do a decent bit of counseling, which is just part of life. We are constantly trying to help each other grow in our affections for Christ. And by the way, mar- marriage counseling is, is not this really scary thing. A lot of times people just need help. It's two Christian families usually sitting down together just pointing each other to Christ. It's not this horrible, scary thing. But a lot of times it's needed. And it's interesting sometimes as you talk to people who are going through what we tend to call marriage counseling, although I think that term probably doesn't help us because it sounds scary and institutionalized, is that when it's all said and done, people tend to look at marriage over time through a certain set of lenses. And by that I mean they have enough experience to realize that what they at first thought was going to be so perfect and easy has not been so. And over time, as you begin to see your selfishness unfolded in your marriage, you realize that you bring problems to the table, and so does your spouse. And what you end up doing is you put two people kind of into a cage. Now, you may not like ultimate fighting, but, but that's kind of what marriage ends up being sometimes. You put these two people who, who are pretty selfish down to their core, and you put them in a cage that we call marriage, and you say, go at it. Now, hopefully most of the time they're hugging it out, but occasionally they duke it out. And I don't mean physically, I mean metaphorically. Why is that the case? Why is marriage so hard? Well, I think, first of all, marriage is hard because marriage elicits unfulfilled longings. Why do you think that in one way or another, every movie that you've ever seen has a romantic storyline? It can be like a macho warrior movie, and he's got somebody to love. It can be a comedy, and there's somebody to love. It can be a horror movie, and there's a love interest. And then, of course, you have all the sappy, girly movies where it's all about the love. But, but in some way or another, the, the fabric of romance is sort of woven into every part of our psyche. Why is that? Because God has programmed us to to want satisfaction through that relationship in particular. And therefore, in some ways, marriage holds out to us the prospect of fulfilled longings. We have this longing for fulfillment in relational contact, and marriage uniquely offers that to us. But at the same time, it never quite delivers what we hope it will deliver. Now, you may say to yourself, if you're thinking carefully today, didn't God give it to us? And therefore, if He gave it to us, He knew we needed it, and therefore, the longing is natural. Now, I would say to you, on the one hand, yes. But one of the reasons why that has broken apart is because of what we call sin. It's what's hinted at in chapter 2, verse 25. Shame has entered the marriage. And therefore, our marriages are somewhat fragile, and they're spotted. They're they're marred by imperfection, both the imperfection of our spouses and our own imperfections. And therefore, neither one of us are perfect coming into the relationship, and therefore, the fulfillment never quite reaches its max here this side of eternity. In addition to that, We have taken something which is very good, and we have made it into an idol too often. 
So our marriages are frequently disappointing because we're sinners. They're likewise frequently disappointing because we're idolaters. We try to turn our spouse into something that they're not. We ask them, even if we never quite state it out loud, to deliver something that they can't really deliver on. So God gave Eve to Adam to fulfill him relationally. But what has happened since the fall is that we have taken our spouses and tried to elevate them to a point that they just can't live up to. So it's possible to make gods out of things that are not gods. And anything short of Yahweh the Almighty can't deliver like a god is expected by us to deliver. So marriage elicits unfulfilled longings, both before you're married, because you hope it will, then after you're married. Which is why it's so easy to be frustrated with your spouse. This explains why the people that you love the most can disappoint you the most. Isn't it amazing that the one that you intensely love, your spouse, can also hurt you the most deeply? That's why occasionally as you run into people whose marriages have truly crumbled and maybe there has been separation or divorce, this couple that at one time intensely loved each other now absolutely despises each other. How how can that be? How can you go from from the pinnacle of human affections to the depths of human hatred? How can you burn with love and then seethe with hatred for the same person? It's because of your sin. It's because of what you have brought to the table and what they have brought to the table. It's because whenever you've gotten into that metaphorical ring of marriage, you, you have actually gone after each other, and the selfishness has not been dealt with, and then it just comes apart, and that person that you had such affection for can, can actually become like a mortal enemy. Marriage elicits unfulfilled longings. I don't know where you are today. I hope that, that though you feel this to a degree, you're, you're struggling through the difficulties of marriage, and you say, I I recognize that, that resonates with me, but that doesn't, by and large, characterize my marriage. But I would suspect that there are some here today who who are going through this, and you think to yourself, it hasn't delivered like I thought it would. I wish I could do it over. I wish I had married a different person. I have no hope this will ever get better. And even though I know that leaving my spouse is absolutely the wrong thing, the prospect of happiness seems like stepping away is worth it. So people are all over the spectrum today on this, I'm sure. But wherever you are in this, it explains why your marriage is hard. Satan was like this with God. Satan had a perfect relationship with God. We, we guess a little bit at this. We have to sort of peer into some certain texts which 
give us maybe some answers into this, but it seems like Satan himself had some kind of special relationship among the hosts of the angels. But he craved something that couldn't be his. He craved equality with God. He wanted to be worshipped. And this one with whom he had intensely personal joy and satisfaction, God Almighty, the one who made him, he turned away from, and now Satan himself seethes with hatred for the one that he once intensely loved. And it makes sense, therefore, that, that those who fall into Satan's trap can, can learn to hate those they love as well. And the reason I tell you that ancient story is to tell you that it's always been that way. Relationships which offer to us intense joy can actually result in seething hatred. Marriage elicits unfulfilled longings. And so, therefore, today for you, you may have a low ebb of that, or from time to time you're just frustrated with your spouse, or it might be super intense today. The second thing that I think we understand, or at least this text reveals to us about why our marriages are so hard, is that our marriages are attacked by God's archenemy. Down in chapter 3, you see this one who began to seethe with hatred for the Almighty coming to disrupt their relationship. That makes sense, right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman responds, God said we shouldn't eat it and we shouldn't touch it. But the serpent says, verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. How did he come after them? He aroused within them longings that should not have been there. He twisted natural longings. A natural longing to be fulfilled by the Almighty, he twisted and warped and mutated and created new evil longings. You see, it wasn't the eating of the fruit itself. There, was, there wasn't something built into the nature of that piece of fruit that actually made them fall. It was the intuition and notion behind that. And Satan, the one who once loved God but now hated God, came after them and did the same thing to them. They went from lovers of God, the one who had made them, the one who had officiated their wedding, the one who had come and spent time with them day after day, And now they learn to hate Him. Our marriages are attacked by God's arch enemy. Satan hates God, and he doesn't try to hide it. Therefore, he hates the crowning achievement of God. He hates humans, and he hates our marriages, simply because he hates everything about us. but he hates what our marriages represent. We'll talk more about that in a bit. And what Satan does very cleverly is he offers us false gospels. Not that there is another gospel, but, but they masquerade as such. We have the thought that marriage is about us. That somehow by by having a spouse to live with us, that we can have someone worship us. Isn't that what Adam and Eve were doing here? They were tempted with the notion that they could also have 
have worship. They could worship themselves. They could have other people worship them. After all, that's who God was. God was the one who made everything so that, so that everything would worship Him. Satan craved that, and because of that, he fell. But he comes after Adam and Eve because he wants other people to worship him. But he tempts them with the same thing. You can be like God and have people worship you. So in a moment, Eve and her husband Adam turn into self-worshippers. They crave people to adore them. And you bring that into your marriage. You struggle with that all the time, whether you recognize it or not. And again, we're looking into this text so that you have a lens to understand why you do what you do. Why do you sin ultimately, whether it's in the context of your marriage or some other context? Why? Because you believe fundamentally in the moment in which you choose to sin that this other thing, this thing which stands in opposition to God, will bring you pleasure. And even though maybe your, your mental wrangling doesn't actually get to this sort of elucidated point, you believe that you're worth it. You believe that you can reject worship of the Almighty because, after all, you're the center of the universe around which everything revolves. That's what sin is. Sin is rejection of worship of the Almighty and a fundamental belief that you deserve worship. Therefore, it's okay to reject worship of God because you deserve worship. It explains why we're greedy. It explains why we covet. It explains why we justify our wrath. It explains why we lust. It explains why we are fundamentally selfish. We crave other people worshiping us. And what happens when you bring two people like that into a relationship of intimacy? It's like a charged atmosphere, and you're going to get zapped. Occasionally, whenever you are out in the Rocky Mountains, especially in the summer, and you decide that you're going to summit a larger mountain, um, it's beautiful and pristine very often, and so usually if you're going to do this, you leave really early in the morning when it's way dark, and you try to get mostly up to the summit of the mountain by daybreak if you can. Because if you don't, the longer you go in the day, the more charged the atmosphere becomes. And it's almost a given that by noon or a little bit after lunch, there's going to be a thunderstorm somewhere in the mountains. And not only do you see the thunderhead sort of forming in the distance, you can actually feel it after a while. And if you're not careful and you're actually descending from the summit by a good given time, you can hear the rocks around you humming because the air is full of static electricity. It's really, really dangerous. A couple of years ago, we were outside of Breckenridge in Colorado, and we had made it down before the storm came. And as we were coming down, people were still going up. And I was saying to them, as you go up, you better not go up. You better just turn around because you might die. Of course, they think to themselves, no, you know, like we're going to go up there and we're going to be heroes and put it on our Facebook page or whatever. But what you say to these people is just not worth it. Our marriages are like that. They're, they're charged with electricity. And at any given moment, and usually very surprisingly to us, we can get zapped or we, we zap each other. It's filled with, with potential for damage. And the whole thing, which once was so beautiful, can just come undone. You bring that to your marriage. Your spouse brings that to the marriage. 
And Satan knows how to to tickle your fancy. Satan knows how to to tempt you. Satan knows how to twist things to the point that that your marriage will come undone because he's after you. And he tempts you with the notion that you have the right to be who you want to be and you have the right to bring your selfishness to the table because, after all, you deserve to be worshipped. And often what we do when our marriages are so full of static electricity and we know there's problems as we look at our spouse and say, you're the problem. But in reality, we're both the problem. And if you crave self-worship, and if I crave self-worship, you'll never meet my needs, and I'll never meet yours. But I will demand them out of you, and you will demand them out of me. And round and round we go. Marriage is hard because marriage elicits unfulfilled longings. Marriage is hard because our marriages are attacked by God's arch enemy. And if Satan's primary goal is to undo God, he will often do that by seeking to undo God's people. Thirdly, marriage is so hard because we worship ourselves at the expense of our spouses. So point two and point three really go together. Satan worshiped himself and therefore tempted Adam and Eve at that. And therefore we do the same thing. He warns Adam and Eve about this after the fall, God does. So he comes, God does, in verse 14 and 15, he curses the serpent. But in verse 16, he says to the woman, childbearing is going to be hard. Oh, and by the way, you're going to want to rule over your husband now. The whole economy of the home is going to be screwed up. And though God does not say this to Adam, I think he would likewise say, by the way, it used to be easy to love this woman. It's not going to be so easy anymore. Why would it be hard for Eve to respect her husband? Because she wanted respect. She craves it. Why would it be so hard, conversely, for Adam to love his wife now? What what was so easy before? In fact, he, he was speaking poetry about her just a bit ago. Because he loves himself. I challenge you next fight you have, and maybe you're in the middle of one right now, to think through this grid. In what way is my own propensity, my own likelihood, my own sort of internal drive to worship myself contributing to this problem? And see, I think in one way or another, even if you've never quite thought about things through this lens, you have an intuition about it because you recognize the selfishness of your spouse, right? You're pretty good at that. You're, you're kind of a, a selfishness detective when it comes to everybody else. So, so you notice when the people around you that you love the most, the ones you, you know really well, like sometimes in marriage we have these little cliches. You know, a spouse will say about maybe her husband, he knows what I'm thinking before I ever say it, you know, right? So, you know, we become good detectives of one another. We, we understand each other. And we're very prone. We're, we have a great ability to understand the weaknesses of our spouse, but we're often not very good at recognizing our own. So I, I want you to, to ask yourself, next time you go through a difficult spot in your marriage, whenever you recognize intensely that your marriages are hard, to ask yourself, 
am I at least in some way part of the problem here? And is my craving for self-worship, even though I've never quite thought about it that way, contributing to the deficiencies in my marriage? We do need to move on, though, to this question. How is the gospel good news for our marriages? Now, we've already hinted at this in times past, but I want to say it to you again. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first mention of the gospel is given. You don't have to wait all the way to the New Testament to find the promise of the gospel. It's here immediately after the fall. You guys know this story, probably. God comes after Adam and Eve. He, he pursues them. Adam and Eve, we might say, were the first prodigals. God doesn't wait until they come seeking for Him, because that wouldn't have happened. They go hiding. They try to cover themselves. And I think it's more than just a narrative little detail. There's symbolism there. They, they try to hide and cover themselves, because they're ashamed. And they think that somehow they can manufacture a way to once again be okay with the Almighty. God knows that won't work, so He pursues them. He comes to them in their hiding. He comes to them in their attempt to self-cover, and He exposes them. And then He comes after His archenemy. And He says, I'm going to send one who's going to bruise your head. He's going to crush you. That's the promise of the gospel. And I think more symbolism is found in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and Eve, his wife, the ones who tried to hide and cover themselves, he gave them skins to clothe them, which I think is a subtle picture prophecy of what the Lamb of God would do one day when he gives us his righteousness. Any garment with which we try to cover ourselves, our own righteousness, is flimsy and we will be exposed. We're still naked. Only Jesus can cover us. So the gospel is promised and pictured here in Genesis 3, right away. God is full of grace. The story of the Bible is, a, is God's story of grace. The next month in December, we're going to take a few weeks and really unpack the mission of God to redeem for Himself a people. That's what the advent of Christ was all about. And then we're going to talk about how we join in that. That has begun here. It's, it's unfolded here immediately. So the gospel is wrapped up in this passage. If it's true that our marriages hum with static electricity, just waiting to zap us and, and waiting for us to come undone, this passage is humming with gospel hope. So how is the gospel good news for our marriages? We're going to go back through our three points, but in a different way, in answering how do we overcome these things and in, in understanding and hoping in the gospel. Well, first, we belong to Jesus. If it's true that marriage elicits unfulfilled longings, there is only one who can truly fulfill us. Which is why we can say that marriages are characterized by both struggle and salvation. Our marriages characterize or picture salvation because that's what they were designed to do. And through our marriages, we are reminded constantly, if we have eyes to see that we belong to Jesus. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, a passage which with I think most of you are very familiar, Paul is speaking to a distinct group of people in Ephesus, realizing that these people, just like us, 
struggle in their marriages. And so he says to the wives, beginning in verse 22, wives of Ephesus and every wife before and since, you should respect your husbands. Why does he say that? Because just like Eve, they will have a propensity not to. Beginning in verse 25, he says to husbands, love your wives. Why? Why does he say that? Because they will have a propensity not to. And then, uniquely, Paul takes this passage and says, marriage pictures the gospel. Now, you might think that Paul is just thinking up a clever illustration, saying, well, let me ramp this up a bit so that you'll really value your spouse. And so he compares the husband to Christ. The husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And he compares the wife to the church. Back in verse 24, the church submits to Christ. So there's this interplay of relationship. But Paul is not just thinking about a clever illustration. It's not just a sort of on-the-fly analogy. How do we know this? Well, in verse 32, Paul says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We're not talking about like Harry Potter kind of uh, wizard mystery here. We're talking about something that was shadowed before and has now been unfolded. Paul's point is that marriage itself was designed to teach theological truth. Therefore, Genesis chapter 3 was no surprise to Jesus, which in some reason, in some way, explains to us why he gave marriage back in Genesis chapter 2. Yes, it was for companionship. Yes, it was for procreation and other kinds of things. But theologically speaking, this covenant of marriage was to remind humanity of a much more important, grand, eternal covenant. That Jesus the Son loved His people so much that even knowing they would fall, He still created them And then He came after them, and He gave His life for them, proving the intensity of His love. And now those that have been loved, those we call the church, are to return that love to Him in humble worship. So how is the gospel good news for your marriage? Well, if marriage elicits unfulfilled longings, it's not just because your spouse can't meet your needs. I think God gave us our marriages, at least in part, as sort of a way of looking at something more grand and bigger. So when your marriage reminds you that you are not happy, when your marriage reminds you that you want something more grand, more profound, more lasting, more substantive, in some ways I think that's the voice of the Spirit resonating inside of you saying, only Jesus can actually fulfill you there. Your spouse can't. And the folly of our marriages very often is that we try to make our spouse into an emotional fulfiller when, in fact, they can't do it. We're asking them to do something they just can't do. But the marriage itself, in its beauties and in its struggles, points us to something greater. So, wives, when your husband loves you like he should, that should remind you of Jesus. When he doesn't love you like he should, that should make you long and look to Jesus. Husbands, 
when your wives nag you and bother you and try to usurp your authority and make you feel unrespected. Remember that the Savior who gave His life for you still does not receive perfect worship from His church, from you. And yet He's worthy and He's worth it. And an imperfect wife, husband, should point you to a perfectly satisfying Savior. So the gospel is good news for our marriages and that even though marriage elicits unfulfilled desires, they can be found in Jesus. In fact, they they drive us to Jesus if we understand. Secondly, the gospel is good news for our marriages because our enemies on life support. We read not too long ago as we were wrapping up Romans that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's coming. That's hope. In 1 John chapter 4, John says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Ever since the garden, I think most humans have been scared of snakes. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why Satan is referred to as a serpent, as a warrior who shoots darts at us, as a lion who seeks to devour us, as a dragon who seeks to destroy the people of God. These are horrible images reminding us of just how wicked he is. But he's on life support, and pretty soon he'll be fully crushed. So, we can resist him. His darts can be extinguished. The one who is in us is greater than the one who hates us, God's archenemy. Thirdly, the gospel is good news for our marriages because vertical worship is expressed through horizontal love. Here's what I mean by that. God warns Eve back in Genesis chapter 3 that she's going to want to rule over her husband. Her role is going to come undone. And again, though unstated, I think he would say to Adam, if we could have been there for the whole conversation, it's not going to be easy for you to love anymore. But the promise of the gospel is therefore given in chapter 3 to say to them, it doesn't have to be that way, though. And very often what we find is that vertical worship of God, our understanding of God, is expressed through horizontal love. In other words, we show how great God is. We glorify the glorious one by reflecting his glory to the world around us. So if God is glorious in his love, or if God's love is glorious, you can say it both ways, then I reflect that glory by loving. If part of God's glorious character is that he's faithful, I show how faithful he is by being faithful to those around me. If God is merciful to me, vertically speaking, then I glorify him by showing people around me mercy. And you could go on and on and on. Unchanged hearts, unconverted hearts, those who have not been born again have an incapability of doing that. But according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, those of us who are in Christ are new creations. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's why in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4 and elsewhere in the Scriptures, the apostles can say to us, 
this is who you were. You were liars. You were selfish. You were greedy. You were ambitious. You were lustful. But now speak the truth. Now be selfless. Now desire pure things. This is who you were. This is now who you are. Those of us who are made new through the one who would crush the serpent, those of us who have been given new garments of righteousness by Jesus Christ the righteous, vertical worship is now restored. God came after the prodigals. He would not allow them to hide and try to cover themselves. Genesis chapters 2 through 3 give us a lens to understand why the world is like it is, why my marriage is hard, but it also gives me hope. Again, this text hums with hope. We belong to the one who alone can satisfy us. He is eradicating the rule of the one who seeks to undo us. And Jesus himself restores vertical worship expressed through horizontally loving those that are often hard to love. What do we do with all this? First, work hard at viewing your marriage in light of the gospel. You have to resist viewing your marriage through your selfish, self-worshipping set of lenses. You have to begin viewing your marriage in light of the gospel. There is hope to be found. And in the gospel, we are reminded fundamentally of self-sacrifice. The one who gave himself for us to make us new. And therefore, that leads us to self-sacrifice. It also means that we can't expect something out of our spouses that they can't deliver. Only Jesus can deliver that. And he does. So it lets your spouse, in a way, off the hook. They're no longer an unspoken Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who can fulfill you. Therefore, you start looking to Him for fulfillment and not your spouse who just can't deliver. And when you both start living that way, when you stop expecting the unexpectable out of each other, things can start to move again. And when you both start living out of sacrifice for each other, rather than craving self-worship, the the gears of the mechanism start moving again. But I want to say to you, if you expect a false Messiah out of your spouse, it won't work. The gears grind to a halt. And when you expect that person to fulfill all your longings to worship you, it won't work. So you've got to work hard at viewing your marriage in the light of the gospel. You've got to put on these glasses to understand why you are the way you are, but where hope is to be found. Secondly, you've got to pray to the Spirit for help. We already saw in 1 John chapter 4 that greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. Guess what? Just because you heard a sermon today doesn't mean you're going to go home today. Everything's going to be new. It's going to be perfect. It's not the way it works. Therefore, you've got to beg the Spirit to help you. Because there's demonic oppression coming after you to undo that which pictures the gospel. Satan hates God, he hates the gospel, he hates God's people. He's coming after you. So pray to the Trinity, and specifically to the Spirit, to help you. Pray to the Spirit to take these lenses, these glasses, and to keep them on your eyes so you can see. Don't don't take these glasses off, because if you do, you're going to 
bring your problems back to the table. And so will your spouse, and then round and round we go again. Pray to the Spirit to help you to understand and then to give you grace to obey. And thirdly, lastly, engage in regular, honest, gracious, I'm going to read those again, evaluations with your spouse. Engage, I mean, that's purposeful, right? Engagement is purposeful. Engage in regular, that means consistent, honest, that means transparent, and gracious, no shame, evaluations with your spouse. I have been at points in my marriage, Whitney would, I think, tell you this too, where we have not communicated for such a long time and we have been so selfish that the last thing we want to do is ask the other person, where am I failing? You ever ever been there, like date nights have been sort of too too few and far between and, and the kids have been a mess and you've been a mess and both of you are working too much and there's a lot of stresses with money and family and sickness and all kinds of other stuff. And the last thing you want to do is sit down over coffee or over a meal with your spouse and ask them the question, how am I loving you? Because you know you have not loved well. The problem with that, of course, is that over time we we build layers of calluses. And if we're not engaged in regular, honest, and gracious evaluations of our marriages, we can become so hard and so indifferent that it's hard to peel those away. I know that's a little graphic, but that's kind of what marriage is like. It's hard to peel those away and to get down to the, to the raw flesh again and actually find healing. Husbands, I challenge you, you've got to lead the way on this. Like we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, you are to be the leader in your homes. You, you are the one who gets the machinery working again. If you're waiting for your wife to start respecting you and then you'll reciprocate with love, you better, you better cut out that notion. Who came first? The church was not seeking Jesus. The church wasn't saying, there's somebody I want to submit to. We choose you. It's not the way it worked. The son sought them. God came after Adam and Eve in the garden. He was the covenant head. Therefore, husbands, you're the leader. And I promise you that most of the time, most of the time, as you love the way you should, your wife will respond. She'll melt. But there's a reason why she's harsh. There's a reason why she stands against your leadership. There's a reason why she tries to usurp you. It's usually because you're not loving the way you should, typically. This is why I think when it's all said and done and we meet the Almighty, husbands will bear a greater load than wives. So husbands, get this process moving, no matter how long it's been. Then set schedules regularly to engage in honest, gracious evaluations. Simple questions like, how am I loving you? Or wives to husbands, how am I respecting you? How can I love you better? How can I make your life easier? It could be something simple like, how can I love you today? How can I help you today? What are ways that I irritate you? What are things that are going unfulfilled in our marriage? And and how can we change? If God gave marriage to picture the gospel fundamentally, He receives glory through gospel-centered marriages. I want you to crave the glory of your Savior so much that you're willing to be exposed and deal with the hard stuff. Secondly, in doing so, 
and seeking a marriage that glorifies God, I promise you, it will hum with joy. Just like Genesis 3 hums with hope because we hum with problems and sin. The marriage must exist in an atmosphere of grace where there's no bartering. By that I mean you give, I give. If you don't give, I don't give. You hurt, I hurt. You bless, I bless. That's how marriages often go. It doesn't work. Marriages cannot exist in an economy of bartering. Marriages must not exist in a, in a place of shame where we remind each other of our failures and our unfulfilled longings. Marriages must not be condemning. You're a failure. You do this. You always do this. This is who you are. You're just like your mom. You're just like your dad. This is who you are, and, and you disappoint me. That's the message. Give, give, give. Marriages must not exist in an atmosphere of retribution. You've done this. I'll do this. Isn't it amazing how you can get on this, this merry-go-round, and you just go round and round and round, and just keep hurting each other again and again and again? And the lashes are open wounds, and some of them are scarred over, but they're constant reminders of, of how the whole thing has come undone. Well, Jesus came, and He took the lashes, and He reminds us that, that the sin can come undone, that the brokenness and the disappointment can come undone, and He will fulfill us, and He will fulfill us sometimes through our spouses. I'll close with this. A friend of mine, another pastor here in the area, his father, I think he was around 75 or so and had a horribly diseased heart. <clears throat> in fact, he was on a waiting list for a new heart for a long time. And uh, not too long ago, I think about two years ago now, I received a new heart, which is not, as far as I can tell, very typical for an older person, but somehow he got on the list and got a new heart. My friend graphically on Facebook uh, took a picture, or had the surgeon gave him a picture of the old heart lying in this metal surgical pan, and then he posted it on Facebook. And it, I, I kid you not, and you're going to think I'm exaggerating, it was like that big. It was, it was disgusting, and it was black, and it was what you'd think of as a diseased heart. It's exactly what you'd think of. Um, but now his father has a new heart, and my friend said to me just the other day, we were having lunch, he said, he said, my dad's not the same person he used to be. He said, for one thing, it's it's freeing for him because he now has oxygenated blood and he actually feels pretty good. But he said he jokes and he never used to joke. He's lighthearted. He never used to be lighthearted. He loves and he hugs when he never used to quite be like that. A new heart beats within that man's chest and he's a new man. That's what Christian marriage is. The disease of the old man is removed and replaced with a heart that beats for God. And, and even today, if your marriage is somewhat diseased, Jesus is the one who's given you the new heart that can beat for Him and respond to Him. And I hope today within you there's resonating this message that you need something more. It could be today that, that the diseased heart within you is, is being awakened by the Spirit and I hope that through marriage, if you have not received Christ, the one who has given himself to make you new, that he will give you a new heart. And if you're longing for something transcendent because, because you don't know anything different and you, you don't love him and you do not find longing fulfilled, perhaps even through a sermon, a teaching on marriage, you will realize that there is greater hope to be found because Jesus, the Son of God, has loved you and given himself for you. 
and wants to fulfill you. There's a lot more we could say. We won't. We're going to sing now. Just a moment, we'll stand. We're going to sing the song, Surrender. We haven't sung this in a while. Um, I don't love this song in some ways. You'll understand in just a few moments. The song is this sort of confessional response back to God that we surrender all to Him. I always feel a little bit like a hypocrite when I sing this song because I always sort of sense that I really haven't surrendered all to Him and I'm not quite willing to do that. So what I want you to do is as you view your marriage or you view your heart in some other kind of way today, to, to sing the song as a prayer, a prayer of longing that you want to be surrendered to Him, that you want Him to rule your heart, you want Him to rule your homes. So I ask you now to sing this song as a prayer, that we surrender to Him for His glory. So we're going to respond now to Him by saying to Him that He's worth it. He's the one who can heal us. Then we'll have a couple more opportunities for response in just a moment. So let's stand together. The worship team will come. And as they come, you pray in your heart and use this song as a prayer as well.